pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and look at 1 John, starting at verse 5, going all the way through to verse 10, and then we're going to tack on verses 1 and 2 of the second chapter of John here. So hope you can read along with me. Verse 5 of 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Would you pray with me? Father, thankful for you. Thankful for what you've sent Christ to do on our behalf so that we can be yours forever. Thankful, Lord, that you call us to confess our sins and to bring us to a place of confidence that you will not cast us out. If we come humbly before you, you lift us up in our humility and you give us great joy and assurance that our sins are dealt with at the cross, that there is no sin too great that it would overcome the power of what Jesus has done and the power of his shed blood on our behalf. Lord, help us as we look at your word. Give us what we have not. Make us what we are not. And glorify yourself in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so one of the things that's interesting in this season as we're meeting in homes is that we need to consider not only how we're going to sing, but how we're going to preach and how we're going to pray, and also how we're going to serve the children during this time. And so uh, this week, my goal, rather than sitting and listening to myself preach, at least for the first part of the sermon, is to spend some time with the kids reading a book called The Prince and the Poison Cup. And this is a great allegory of the gospel written by R.C. Sproul some years ago. And in The Prince and the Poison Cup, a king uh, builds a kingdom, the kingdom rebels against him, and he sends his son, the prince, to pay a penalty for them by drinking from the fountain that they were not supposed to drink from, and they had, and they had left him, left the king, and made their own kingdom, and then the prince had to go back to that same fountain that was no longer uh, pleasing to the sight or, or to the taste or appealing in any way, but rather it was full of poison because of what the people had done. And the prince goes and drinks from the poison cup. And in the end, spoiler alert, sorry if you haven't read it yet, but of course this is a gospel allegory. In the end, the people are able to be brought back into the presence of the king, back into right fellowship with the king and be his kingdom once more because of what the prince had done on their behalf. 
Not because of anything that they were doing on their own. They simply needed to be a part of that relationship. They needed to abide in what the prince had done for them. And that is, in fact, our theme as we go through this little book of 1 John, these five chapters. We'll see in the weeks ahead, this word abide will come up often. And it seems to be a favorite word of John's as he considers these tests that he wants to give to those in the church there in Ephesus that they would know whether they are of the true faith, they are of true obedience, and they are of true love when it comes to their relationship with God. There were false teachers going around teaching things, particularly what we'll look at tonight, um, having to do with sin, but also what we saw last week having to do with who Jesus is. Is he the son of God? Was he able to actually come in physical form and become a human? How could God do that? Some teachers were saying that everything physical, everything material is wrong and evil and bad, and so God could never become physical or material. But he has. John is very explicit about that in his beginning verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That we proclaim to you. John is very ardently defensive of the fact that Jesus, who was God, became man as well. And this next step is dealing with sin and how we respond to sin. Because again, if everything material and physical is bad, and if God has saved us from that, some teachers were going on saying that we ought not think of sin as something that we ought to worry about or something that we need to repent of or even confess to the Lord because of course our physical natures are going to do these terrible things, but those don't really matter. This teaching is very popular, of course. It's, in fact, pretty popular today. It just looks a little bit different. So tonight we're going to look at a test of true faith. And this is the title. A test of true faith, colon, confidence in confession. A test of true faith, confidence in confession. In confession, what we are actually doing is we are agreeing with God about what he says about us, about sin, and the end results of those things. Think about confession in a courtroom setting. When a criminal confesses or pleads guilty to the crime that he's been accused of, he is actually given a, in some cases, a lesser sentence. If he can build a good argument for why he shouldn't be punished so strictly, he might be able to avoid some of the punishments or the consequences of what he had done. If he pleads innocent, even if he is guilty, he's given a chance before an imperfect human judge to convince them that he is innocent. He's given an opportunity to come up with his best lie. Crafty lawyers and maybe in false evidence may be able to cover the crime here on earth, but according to Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This passage tonight that we're looking at in 1 John deals with how we think about sin and, and the test of true faith being what do we believe? Do we believe what is true or are we believing and proclaiming a lie when it comes to our sin? We aren't talking simply about non-believers here and, and the fact that they need to repent from sin in the first place first place so that they might be in right relationship with God, but John is actually writing to believers here. James chapter 3 verse 2 says we all stumble in many ways. We cannot listen to the modern rendition of what those Gnostics were teaching John's church back then, that sin doesn't ultimately matter, that those things 
particularly if they do not harm another person, are not in and of themselves wrong. If we think wrongly about our sin, our relationship with God will be affected. Alistair Begg, my favorite preacher, says, when we sin as believers, the clouds come down. He says, our status is intact, but our joy is impaired. A believer cannot be condemned because of sin. He cannot be separated from God because of his sin. If he has truly been born again, then he, as we learned in Philippians, he, that is God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. If you are truly his, you can have confidence that what he has started, he will finish. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But just as those who love to enjoy the outdoors and all they have to offer, those who love the outdoors are affected when the clouds come and they cover the sun and they bring rain and they ruin the day because of the weather. So those who truly belong to Christ will not be okay with their relationship with Christ being hindered or slowed down by their sin. It will be something that you will be aware of. So the beginning parts of this, as we think about these three things that John's going to tell us, if we say, if we say, if we say, those three things are really coming to the heart of what do you believe about sin? Does sin bother you? Do you feel the effects of sin in regards to your relationship with Christ? Can you tell when things are not right? Have the clouds truly come down in your relationship with God when you allow sin a place in your heart? We confess with confidence because the judge to whom we give an account actually wants to forgive us. When we agree, that is when we confess, agree with God about what we think about sin in terms of how he thinks about sin, we take his idea, we make it our idea as well, we can have confidence that he wants to forgive us. He doesn't simply limit the sentence that would come to us if we remain in our sin. He removes the sentence completely. In a human court, one can confess and hope for some degree of mercy to be given. God has no option in his perfect holiness but to hand the sentence down to someone else. The sentence is removed from us and laid on Jesus Christ. So we have confidence in our confession of sin that he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us, as verse 9 says in this very important passage. So here is today's test for our lives, a test of true faith. What do you believe about sin? Because what you believe and how you think about sin matters for your relationship with God and your growth in all that he has for you. Put this test to your heart. Trust in Christ to lift your soul to new heights of joy and obedience and following him over the forgiveness that's available to us today. Today we're going to see three consequences of misunderstanding sin. And we'll see those in every other verse, starting with verse 6. So we'll see it in verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 10. Three consequences of misunderstanding sin. Secondly, as we look at each of those consequences, we will see three solutions slash motivations for dealing with that sin. So let's jump right into verse 6 here. Verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie do not practice the truth. So this first misunderstanding that comes from John's mouth that he recognizes as a false teaching in the body of Christ there is that sin doesn't hurt my fellowship with God. The false teaching John is warning his people against was taught, only, was taught that only spiritual things could be good and that no physical matter could be made good. 
This led to a major error in teaching about Christ. So John opened his letter explaining clearly that Christ had come, that he is the God-man, and he is two natures in one person, fully God and fully man, as we said earlier. John moves today from that matter of who Jesus is to what he has come to do, that being to deal with our sin. So you can see sin may not, the topic of sin is certainly not as important as who Jesus is, right? We have to get our Christology correct, that is, our thinking about Christ. But when we come to the issue of sin, we come to a matter that is central to the mission of what Christ came to accomplish. And this is where John goes. So what is sin? What is this that we need so desperately to confess today and all our days that we can be in right relationship with God? Well, listen to what John Piper says as far as defining sin. He says, what is sin? It is the glory of God, not honored. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. And the presence of God, not prized. And the person of God, not loved. Maybe one part of that definition sticks to your heart a little bit when you recognize what sin is. In verse six, John says that if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Sin is a serious issue. It's not only a serious issue for those who do not know Christ, but it's a serious issue for those who are in the household of faith. It should be something that bothers us. That long definition of all the trading of God's beauty, his holiness, his goodness for something else should be wretched in our hearts and minds. Walking in darkness is his reference to sin. Walking contrary to the light, who is God. When we walk in darkness, we reject not only what God does, but who God is. The way we choose to sin can vary. It's very different for each person, but at the heart of sin is a flat-out turning away from who he is to something else, rejecting his character and his actions for something else to satisfy us. Sin is still a problem in the heart of every true believer, as we've said. This, if we say statement, equates to saying, my sin doesn't matter. Or denying sin entirely, perhaps. By doing so, believers actually sin in lying about the nature and importance of sin, and they're not practicing the truth. So you'll see in these misunderstandings of sin that each time he mentions that there's a lie that's going on, rather than the, the beginning at the end. We'll see it first here, we are lying to others. Then we'll see in the second uh, misunderstanding that we're lying to ourselves. And then lastly, we're actually calling God a liar by our misunderstandings of sin. So by denying sin entirely or saying my sin doesn't matter, believers actually sin in that action. This may be descriptive of those who hear the word, but reject its meaning and calling in life. It's opening your Bible in the morning to perform a daily devotion, but caring little or not at all about what it is that you're called to obey in that word that you had read. It's as if somebody says, I'm in the light, I have fellowship with God, and I'm not worried about sin. It doesn't really matter. This first consequence of embracing false teaching in regards to sin is that we lie and give evidence that we are not practicing the truth. 
that which we've learned from the Lord and his word. So what's the solution? It comes in verse 7. The solution is that we need to walk in the light. That is, that we need to take seriously the issue of sin with him, with God, as he does, and with his people. That's brought in as well. Walk in the light. The truth is that being in the light gives exposure to the things that were well hidden in the darkness. Being one who walks with the Lord in the light doesn't mean we become sinless, although we do sin less. And we become more aware of the sin, more importantly, in our lives because we are walking in that light that exposes it. In this solution, in verse 7, John also gives a result. He says that if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Why does he mention fellowship with other people? Last week we saw part of his goal in writing is that his readers would have fellowship with him and with God the Father and Jesus the Son. Fellowship with God and with his people go hand in hand. You cannot have fellowship with God and not have fellowship with his people if they're around you. And you indeed cannot have fellowship with his people if you do not truly have fellowship with God. I find evidence that I have fellowship with God in my fellowship with other people. It's part of why it's so important for us to gather. That's part of the tension we're living in right now as we're doing video messages and missing, you know, having all the empty seats here right now is just depressing because we're missing an element of what's so important about those Sunday morning gatherings is that they are indeed a gathering. Because the truth is, is that we can open up God's word. We can listen to far better sermons than you're listening to right now online. You can spend time in the word by yourself, in prayer. You can sing songs. I hope that that's what your week looks like. But I hope that then when you come to Sunday, the big difference is that you've gathered with a local gathering of people who love the same Jesus that you love, who are walking in the light, who are walking with you in the light, with whom you're sharing life and doing life together. This is what John wants for us. And he says that it's a result of walking in the light. Now, this isn't to say that every time our schedules don't line up with other people that we're suddenly not in fellowship anymore. But if our hearts are not in a place of desiring that fellowship, I want to be with the people of God, or of lifting our brothers and sisters in prayer, of not just coming to the Lord in your own prayer time just to offer requests for yourself, but to think on what is it that I need to pray for so-and-so, or what about that person? This is part of why, I mean, a church prayer calendar doesn't sound like that important, but it's an easy way for us to have a visible reminder, I should pray for somebody else today. And that being this person who I'm alphabetically going through in the calendar. It could be a helpful thing. We're not working side by side for the gospel with each other. If we're not praying for each other, if we're not desiring to be with the rest of the body of Christ, maybe an indication that we're not walking in the light. John also gives us another line of confidence here. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's no sin that cannot be cleansed by God. God's desire is to unite us to himself and to his church. If he can cleanse us before him to be pure, he can cleanse us before each other as well. Secondly, we come to verse 8. We find that we are self-deceived and the truth is not in us if we say these following words. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
Our second consequence of misunderstanding sin is that not only have we become liars who are not practicing what we ought to, but we are actually lying to ourselves if we don't take sin seriously and run to confession when we recognize it. In that inward lie, there is no room for truth at all. We've filled our own inward convictions and actually deceived ourselves. We have lied to ourselves if we say, my sin's not an issue. I don't need to spend time confessing. I don't need to spend time reflecting over how the day went, how the week went, how that rough conversation with my wife went, or how I got really mad when that guy cut me off on the highway, or what happened at work that made me think a certain way. When we tell ourselves that those things are not important, We're actually lying to ourselves. That's a scary thing to think that we could be lying to others around us about our relationship with the Lord, but it's horrifying to think that we could be actually lying to ourselves. Does the person who lies to himself know he's lying to himself? Well, if he's good at it, then no, he doesn't even know it. Awful to think that we could actually convince ourselves that we have no sin. Here, John is making reference to our sinful nature, that old self that before we knew Jesus was running our lives deciding everything based off of self-benefit, turning from and choosing anything else besides the goodness of God and all that he is, as Piper defines for us earlier. Some would like to say that when we become born again, we no longer have this old nature. For more on that, take a look at Romans 7. John says that if we live like our old ways are not still an issue with us, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that everything is fine when it's not. When the clouds come and I feel distant from God, I won't be able to see that it's my sin that has disrupted my friendship if I'm lying to myself. I'll resort to thinking things about God that aren't true. The test of true faith in this passage asks us if we are aware of, battling, and hating our sin, or if we've been lying to ourselves and the truth is in fact not in us. So what can we do? Verse 9 is the solution to verse 8. But... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Solution two is this famous verse nine of 1 John 1. Rather than lying to others regarding our sin or to ourselves regarding the serious problem of sin, John gives us the greatest solution. If my sin problem is at first a matter of what goes on inside of me, then the solution has to come from outside. It is no longer that I need to simply try to figure out what lie I'm telling myself and believe that, but I need the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform my thinking. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that we must begin by simply confessing, that is agreeing with God about our sin, that we are lying to others and ourselves if we don't think it's a real problem and that only he can make things right. And my friends, he's willing, ready, able, and excited to cleanse us to forgive us and to make things right. First John 1 John 1.9 says he is faithful and just. Our confidence in confession begins with who God is. He is faithful. He has said he will forgive and he will do it. We read in Judges about generations of God's people turning from him to other idols and yet when they cried out to him, he was there. He was ready to forgive. His heart for them was unchanging. Later on, when Jeremiah prophesied to the people who sought rest over all the things that were going on in their lives, he wrote in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This is how God feels about his people. He's not ready to give up on us, no matter how gruesome our sin looks at times. 
If you are truly his people, he will finish that work he began in you, even through all the rough spots. You cannot say, I must not be a Christian because I'm not doing very well. Because that would mean that the truth of, uh, the way that we could convince ourselves, rather, that we are Christians would be by our good performance. But performance, the fruit of what Christ has done, is, is not the thing that saves us. It's just the thing that points to the fact that he is saving us. The, the cross, what Jesus did there, is what is our confidence with him, that he will forgive, that he will cleanse. He is faithful to us. He's not only faithful, but he's also just. He's remained faithful, and he is just. He is that just judge who looks on the criminal and says, justice must be satisfied for the crime that was done. And should not the judge of all the earth do right, Abraham said to God in Genesis. It's remarkable that John brings up this element of God's character in describing why God will forgive us. Doesn't his justice demand, as is written in Ezekiel 18.4, that the soul who sins shall die? Well, yes, and Nahum 1.3 says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So how is this just? How is it that he could be faithful and just at the same time? They seem to be opposing. He's gonna be faithful to loving us, but he also has to be just. He has to recognize that I am a sinner and that I need to pay that payment. How is this just, that he is just in his forgiving us? Wouldn't he be just to condemn and destroy us? He's just because Christ has become our advocate. He has become our propitiation. That is that he has absorbed the wrath of God for us, our substitute. More on that when we get to 2 too. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In his actions towards us, he deals with the present need of forgiveness for, for the sin we've committed and the future consequences of that sin, that stain. He is faithful and just to forgive us, bring us in a right relationship with him and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is that once the sin has been wiped away, that stain that would be there, if you imagine a garment being having grape juice spilled all over it, you know, that beautiful white table suddenly just covered in grape juice or covered in ketchup or whatever your kids would throw on it. And you say, oh boy, I can remove the, the ketchup. I can remove the grape juice. I can remove the whatever food fell on it, but there's gonna be a stain. That's what this means, that he's faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just remove the sin, but to remove even the remembrance of it, to secure us from future consequences of that sin because he put it on Christ. Later in that 31st chapter, the Lord speak, speaks through Jeremiah again in verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Christian, if you are worried about the ability of God to forgive you, think hundreds of years before Christ even came and died on the cross. He wrote through Jeremiah that he will remember his people's sins no more. Do you know what it means that he's not gonna remember it? That means he's going to forget. Forgiveness in God's economy includes forgetting. Releasing the offender from every part of the wrong that they have done. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have this kind of confidence sorry, today in how the Lord meets us with that forgiveness. In forgiving, he takes care of our present need. In cleansing, he removes the future stain. Through the law in the Old Testament, there are considerations and prohibitions for those who are counted unclean. 
It clouds their relationship with God. Confession is the vehicle by which we access all that God has to give us in his forgiveness. In Christ, he has sanctified us, that has made us holy to him. He's also sanctifying us, that being making us more like Jesus on a practical daily level from one degree of glory to the next. Again, remember, we don't become sinless, but we do start to sin less. And that is what's happening is he's cleansing us from all unrighteousness. He's giving us greater strength to endure temptation and to run to confession more quickly, more readily when we do sin. Just as in him there is no darkness, so in our new nature and in our future glory there will be no stain of sin. We are accepted permanently in the beloved. That is our second solution. Let's go to our third problem in verse 10. Verse 10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We need to deal with the final consequence of misunderstanding sin. 110 says that if we, have not, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Saying we have not sinned would be the same as saying we don't need a savior. Saying we don't need a savior is to say to God, your son didn't have to die. I don't need him. Remember, those false teachers were spreading these false teachings in the church. And in them, they were attempting to bring it to ruin. If I take my sin lightly, I disregard what God has clearly said in his word. And I actually make a claim that he himself is a liar. So what's the last solution? Solution number three, trust Jesus. It's found in verses one and two of chapter two. My little children, I'm writing these, writing these things to you so that you may not sin. His purpose is clear. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Sorry, that's later on. That's verse three. Remember, chapters and verses are not inspired by the Holy Spirit here, so we're continuing this section into this uh, first and second verse of chapter 2. We see on paper the be beating heart of the pastor in John for his people. It is as if he had been so overcome with his love and concern for the church that he stops before giving his final solution to pour out his heart in endearment. Church, let's take note of John's heart for the people of God. Hear the conviction in his own heart that he wishes to see repeated in theirs. He cares about them, not just their thinking, but he cares about them. He gives us purpose in, his, in this section. He writes these things so that we will not sin. He wants us to be aware of sin. He wants us to realize the lie that would say my sin doesn't matter. The lie that we tell others ourselves and that leads us to actually call God himself a liar. And that is all through misunderstanding sin. Christ is our advocate. He speaks to God for us. He takes the matter of sin into his own hands. He brings us into God's presence, forgiven and cleansed. He speaks to the Father in the moments of our failings. The Father listens. The Spirit inside us affirms through the word that we belong to him. Christ is our propitiation, a really big word. But he takes the punishment that we deserve. He steps into the courtroom and receives our sentence. He bridges the gap to make us right with him. He doesn't need to die again and again every time we sin. His once-for-all death has such an effective result that we are forgiven once and for all. Jesus, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 26, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once 
for all. He alone is the one-time sacrifice for our sins. And for those of the whole world, John says, that doesn't mean everyone is okay and everybody's going to heaven, but that only by Christ's sacrifice can anyone come to know him. And his sacrifice is so significant, so effective, so powerful that anyone who will confess and come into the light can be forgiven and cleansed by him. What a great point for us in this passage to realize our mission. Testify to what the Lord has done and is doing for you to those who need a propitiation. They need an atoning sacrifice. They need someone to go to God on their behalf between them and God to absorb the wrath of God and to give them their righteousness, to give Jesus' righteousness to those non-believers so that they might be in fellowship with us as well. If you have sin, you need to confess today. Have great confidence that in your agreeing with God about sin, he is ready to forgive you. Could there ever be a sin so great that the blood of Jesus could not conquer it? No. Perhaps you've heard your own voice in one of these if we say statements of John. Take some time to reflect on the fact that our confidence in confession is based on who he is and what he's done. That it is greater than any of our sin. That his mercy will bring us to greater heights of joy and satisfaction in him. Greater victory is to be found in trusting Christ over our own efforts or our own thinking. It's very easy to try to cling to some of these misunderstandings of sin and to tell ourselves our sin doesn't really matter that much, partially because we are afraid of how God's going to react. We're afraid that maybe this is going to be that last time that he's going to forgive us. The truth is he will forgive us and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have faith. Trust the Lord in this. He is glorified in our humility when we confess and walk with him in the light and with each other. Don't think lightly about sin, though, but don't think lightly about the Savior either. Be confident that he forgives, that he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Your present tense state right now, your present state is secure in him. Your future is glorious in him. Confess your sin. Watch the clouds give way to his glorious light. Before I pray to close, here's three questions for you to reflect on and maybe even share with your group, those who are around you right now. What is the status of your heart regarding sin? Do you take time regularly to confess your sins to him? Secondly, what is the status of your fellowship with others? Do you prioritize time with other believers as you walk in the light? And lastly, are you confident today in the work of Christ in you to forgive and cleanse you? Do you walk confidently in the light with him? Let's pray. Father, thank you today that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. Lord, let us not be fearful or timid or even arrogant or, or anything that would get in the way of us confessing our sins to you so that you could cleanse us. You could make us more like Christ. You could show us the glories of your forgiveness and your goodness to us. Lord, I pray you'd be merciful to us, that you'd draw us close to you in these days. We look at the world around us seems to be so little assurance, so little security. But we have assurance that you deal with our sins. You've dealt with our sins at the cross through your son. Lord, draw us closer into relationship with you. Help us to abide with you in the light. And as sin is revealed, Lord, let us be quick to confess, to agree with you about our sin, and to trust you to cleanse and forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.